Lord this morning. And one of the seven angels, who had seven bulls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual morality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the 10 horns that you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. They have one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They'll make, they'll make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast till the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is a great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. As far the reading of God's word, we need his help to understand it. So let me pray. God, we are dependent on you for life and breath and everything. And yet especially we're dependent on you because, Lord, we need to understand your word rightly. Lord, make it not just words on a page, but help it, it its message and truth to be clear to our minds, its application to be impressed upon our hearts. And Lord, above all, every time we come to your word, we ask that you'd help us see our need for Christ more clearly and see his glory shine all that much more brightly for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever fallen into the trap of being tricked and deceived by appearances before? Kids, perhaps you remember the first time your parents had to explain to you what a mirage is. Remember, you're driving down the road, it's summer vacation, it's a hot, sunny day, and you're sitting in the back of the car and you keep asking your parents, why is there a big puddle of water on the road ahead of us? And so then they have to explain to you, as you keep driving up to that puddle of water and it disappears, that the sun in the summer is a really big trickster, plays a lot of deceptive tricks on you. Or maybe, as you grew up, you remember the first time you ever fell for a scam. 
Remember, you got the alert that your password on one of your online accounts had been compromised and needed to be changed immediately. So you click on the link that was provided to you, and it takes you to a web page that is exactly like the web page it should have taken you to, but isn't the real web page. So you're unsuspecting. So you type in your username, you type in your old password, and then you type in what you think ought to be your new password, and you click submit. And then everything kind of disappears, and it doesn't take you where you think it was supposed to. So you sit there for about 30 seconds after hitting the submit button, and then it hits you. Whoops. I didn't change my password. I actually gave someone my old actual password and my username, and now they have unrestricted access to my account because I was deceived by appearances. So those experiences, the mirage that you see as a kid, the scam alert that you get as an adult, remind us of that ancient proverbial warning Appearances can be deceiving. Or as Shakespeare mentioned in his famous play, The Mention of of Venice, all that glitters is not gold. Well, the reason I bring that up is because those proverbial warnings, appearances can be deceiving, all that glitters is not gold, are exactly what Revelation 17 is about for the church. In Revelation 17, John is going to introduce us to a woman who, on the outside, externally, is deceptively beautiful and alluring and seductive. But as he exposes the truth about her, he's going to show that she is spiritually rotten and deadly to the core. So far in Revelation, in our study, we've seen a number of contrasting things that stand in opposition to one another. For example, there's Revelation has been, as you could say, the tale of two animals. So in Revelation, we have the lamb who was slain to redeem his people and ransom people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. But we also have the beast who wants to devour the lamb's people. There's been the tale of two marks in Revelation. We have the mark of the lamb and the mark of the beast. And each mark represents not a physical, literal sign, but it represents where does your spiritual loyalty lie? So with the lamb and what he represents or with the beast and what he represents. Well, there's also in Revelation, the tale of two cities. We have the city of man, which has just been referred to in chapters 15 and 16 as Babylon, Babylon the Great. And then we have coming in Revelation 21, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Now, each of these cities refers not to a geographical location. You can't look this up on Google Maps. What it refers to is a way of living, a style of life, a manner of life that are opposite and opposed to one another. Babylon represents all that is in rebellion to God, all the pride of man which opposes God and his ways, and the new Jerusalem, which is about following the lamb wherever he leads. It's about the self-sacrificial life that Christ represented for us in his own humility and death. Well, now we come to a section of Revelation that is bookended by the tale of two different women who stand in opposition to one another. So on the one hand, we have the seductive woman of the beast. So look at verse 1 of chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Well, then jump over to Revelation 21, verse 9. Because on the other hand, we have the holy bride of the Lamb. And notice how closely representative this text is of what I just read to you in chapter 17, verse 1. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So two different women, each representing 
an opposing type of attraction, the attraction of worldliness and ungodliness, or the attraction of holiness and godliness. And each woman is an opposing picture of marriage. So one of the most frequent and significant metaphors that the Bible uses for one's relationship with the Lord is that of marriage. That God created this this covenant idea where he would be our God and we would be his people. Then he created marriage to say, I want marriage to mimic what that is so that when people see it, they would know about that. So in the Old Testament, whenever Israel goes off after the gods of the other nations around them, the Lord uses marriage terminology to describe the grievous nature of what they are doing. He uses the language of of spiritual unfaithfulness, spiritual adultery to describe the grievous nature of the sin they've committed. And that's what this seductive woman represents of the beast. This deceptively attractive woman stands for everything in this fallen world, any ideology, any manner of living, any cultural current that would tempt, seduce, and draw us away from Christ. So in all her beauty, it is the deceptive beauty of anything that would draw, tempt, and seduce us away from Christ. So John is writing this to keep us from being deceived because his desire is the same as that of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11.2. This is how Paul thought of his ministry to the church. He said, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I have betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure bride to Christ. Paul saw himself as it were as as a suitor who had brought about this engagement between Christ and his bride, the church. And he said, I want to do whatever I can to protect that bond, to protect the, the purity of that relationship. So Revelation 17 is written in that same vein. It is written to protect the purity of our devotion to Christ by exposing the deceptive appearances of this seductive fallen world. Let's start by asking the question, what is it that makes this woman so deceptively attractive? In other words, what is it that is so appealing about worldliness that it allures us away from faithfulness to Christ? Well, I'm going to call this woman Miss Worldliness. So in the vein of Pilgrim's Progress, you know, Mr. Worldly Wiseman, well, this is his unfaithful wife, Miss Worldliness. Well, one characteristic that makes Miss Worldliness so attractive is her offer of the unrestricted enjoyment of pleasure. So in verse 2, if you look there, John mentions that this woman has made people on the earth drunk with immorality. She's given them their fill of immorality. Then in verse 4, towards the end of verse 4, he mentions that in her hand, is a cup full of abominations and impurities and immorality. In other words, where the Lord sets boundaries, where the Lord gives the prohibitions of do not, Miss Worldliness says, do whatever you like. Have as much as you want. Where the Lord says, live for the new Jerusalem, live as citizens of heaven, not being tempted by the things of this world. Miss Worldliness says, what happens in Babylon stays in Babylon. You can think of her, kids, like the white witch in the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. When Edmund first meets her, she's not this terrible, wicked, evil witch. In fact, she's beautiful, powerful, intimidating, alluring, and she gives exorbitant amounts of Turkish delight. And she even promises that if you would pledge your loyalty to her, you can go to her castle and there'll be rooms full of Turkish delight. And what's what's so interesting about how Lewis tells that story of the white witch, when Edmund eats it, it's enchanted Turkish delight. And as many who have had Turkish delight know, it has to be because you wouldn't eat that much of it anyway. It's not that good. When Edmund then goes to the castle, expecting to find rooms full of Turkish delight, what does he end up finding? He finds that he is a slave of the queen. He's been enslaved by his passions. 
because he indulged them wrongly. Well, another characteristic that makes Miss Worldliness deceptively attractive is her popularity and influence. Look at verse one. One of the angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I'll show you the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. What does it mean that she's seated on many waters? Well, jump down to verse 15 because John answers it. It says, and the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. The idea is that Miss Worldliness and her influence and her popularity is like a major river that runs all throughout the world. There's not a place and a people and a culture anywhere that is free from her influence, which spreads all over the place. There's not a place where you can go in this fallen world where the stream of her influence has not already spread. To translate it into modern metaphors, Miss Worldliness has the most popular YouTube channel and has the most followed social media page. She, her influence and popularity is everywhere. She sets the trends that everyone in the world seems to follow. And the current of her influence is incredibly strong. It is easy to get swept up into it and carried away by it without thinking. Well, in addition to that, people are so envious of Miss Worldliness because of her great wealth and prosperity. Look at the description of her in verse four. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, and she held in her hand a golden cup. So she wears the most luxurious brands of clothing. She accessorizes with the most expensive jewelry. Even her personalized Yeti drinking cup is made of gold, pure gold. What John is showing here is that everything about her external appearance communicates that she is prosperous and wealthy. It's that, it's that person you'd see that when you see them, just by their appearance, you would know right away they're in a different income bracket than I am. And they get to live a lifestyle of luxury and ease that a peasant like me could hardly ever dream about. It's hard not to look at this woman with all of her external beauty, all the luxury of her lifestyle, and not break the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. It's, it's hard not to look at her as we often do when we, we on social media, you look at it and you, you're seeing the lifestyle that someone else gets to live and you think, oh, I would be happy if I could have that. If only I could have that. Also, people find Miss Worldliness attractive and intimidatingly alluring because of her prominent position and power. Look at verse three. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and 10 horns. This is a rather strange image, I understand, but John is showing us here that there is a very close relationship between this woman that we're seeing and the beast that she is riding upon. Well, we met the beast in Revelation 13, and that beast in Revelation 13, I argued, represented any political institution, any governmental system that uses its power, uses its authority to oppose the Lord and oppose his people. So in that day would have been Rome. Rome had all this might, all this power, and it used it against the Lord and against his people. Well, now riding on the back of the beast is this seductively beautiful woman, which represents any culture, any ideology, any manner of living that is in opposition to what it means to follow the lamb wherever he leads. In other words, I think this idea of the woman sitting on the beast is to give this picture that political systems that oppose God's standards love to support and give a prominent place to and propagate ideologies and manners of life and, cult and cultures 
that also oppose God's standards. It's the adage, the, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So political institutions that oppose God love to take on cultural ideologies that oppose God and just pipe them out into the world. So this woman and all she represents is in such a place of great prominence that you better not get on her bad side or else look at verse six. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So this ideology, culture, whatever she represents is also contributing to the fact that when Christians stand opposed to it, like John the Baptist did to Herod and what he was doing, these things, when they get this place of prominent position and power, can be a great source of persecution to Christians who oppose it. So John is saying here is, if her attractive outward appearance was not enough to draw you in and compel you, the threat of being killed by her for not being attracted to her might just do the trick. So to sum it up, what makes Miss Worldliness so enticing and attractive, as far as outward surface appearance go, is this. She offers unrestricted enjoyment of pleasure, no prohibitions, no do-nots. She is incredibly popular and influential. All the world goes after her. The, cult, the current of her influence is strong. She is wealthy and prosperous. And maybe if you join in, you can get some of that for yourself. And she is intimidatingly powerful and has such a prominent position. In other words, she embodies all the attractions of worldliness that John mentioned in 1 John 2.16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life. Or to put it, a more contemporary saying, if it feels good, try it. If it looks good, buy it. And always have your own best interests in mind. That's kind of the essence of living for worldliness. Hedonism, materialism, narcissism, you can put any ism to it. No wonder John reacts the way that he does when he sees the vision of the woman. Look at the very last phrase of verse six when John kind of inserts his own expression. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Now, I think what John is doing there is he is cluing us into how spellbindingly attractive this woman looks, how powerful her influence is that he, even in the spirit, kind of brought out into the safety of the wilderness to see this woman from a distance, still feels the power and allure of her beauty. And so part of the reason John has written this section of Revelation is to warn us of the spellbinding nature of her attractiveness that draws us in, But also, most importantly, he wrote this section to break the spell of her attractiveness by showing us the truth about misworldliness from a divine and heavenly perspective. Revelation is written to give us a God's eye view on the things of earth, to help us see them rightly from heaven's perspective. So to break the spell of the seduction and deception of misworldliness, we need to see that all her paths lead to death. All her paths lead to death. Following her leads to death. John uses in this section, as you heard it read, very strong and very suggestive language to describe who this woman is. He calls her the great prostitute, the mother of prostitutes. And John uses very strong language to describe the practices that she promotes, abominations, impurity, immorality. He he labels it all with morally filthy language. Why such strong and shocking and even scandalous language. Because John wants us to define things as God defines them. He wants us to see things as God sees them and feel about things as God feels about them, not as the world does. So John calls them what they are. 
One of the dangerous and deceptive effects of worldliness is that it makes righteousness seem very strange and sin seem very normal, right? And it often does this through its use of language. For example, worldliness takes something like the distortion and denial of God's design for marriage and gender and human sexuality, and it gives it all sorts of very nice-sounding heroic language. It's brave, it's bold, it's progress, it's liberating, it's the freedom of self-expression. Love is love. I mean, how can you agree? How can you disagree with those terms, right? And any opposition to that ideology, worldly ideologies give all sorts of nasty labels to. If you oppose any of that, you're intolerant, you're a bigot, and you're discriminatory. Who wants to be labeled that? Who wants to? I don't. I don't want to be that. So evil becomes good, good becomes evil. Up is down, down is up, backwards is forward, forward is backward. You feel like. You know, you're Alice through the looking glass. I went to see one of the musicals and I was confused a little bit, just a little bit. And in this world, it's hard not to be morally confused, right? Well, I found this very helpful quote from Charles Spurgeon. He was writing in 1890 about how language was being used to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. And here's what he said in 1890. He said, fine words are often used to cover foul deeds, yet names do not alter things. Call garlic perfume, and it remains a rank odor. Sin, call it by what names you may, is still evil, only evil, and that continually. If we allow poison to be called a softer name, many will be foolish enough to drink it. So we must call things what they are, namely what the Lord calls them. Now, I'm not here promoting that you go out and start castigating people and just start using language like abomination and moral filth with everyone. That's not at all. There, there's a winsomeness that needs to be used in doing it. But even in how we evaluate things with ourselves, we need to be careful that we're, we're using God's standards of defining things rather than the world's. So for example, one of the ways I do this with in my own house is I, I'm very careful with my kids to label sin, sin. I, do, I don't like the word mistake or excuse. If it is truly a moral line has been crossed, I call it what it is. And I don't allow excuses. So for example, if my kids are tired, I want to help distinguish between the occasion of sin and the cause of sin. Tired doesn't make you sin. It just shows how sinful you are to your brother and sister, right? Because I don't want them growing up thinking that just getting more sleep is the solution to their sin problem. I want them to know that they have a savior who is the only solution to their sin problem. And if we don't think that there is such a category sin, why do we need Christ? Why, why would we need him? We need to label things what they are, in part so that we would, as Christians, know that we need Christ and that there is a great Christ for our need. So in one sense, John uses shocking and scandalous language so that we would define and see and feel about things the way God does, not the world. So by labeling misworldliness and her practices properly, the Lord is showing us that despite her promises, despite her illumination, Despite whatever she may offer externally, all her paths lead to death. Lying in the background of John's description of this woman in Revelation 17 is the wise warning of Proverbs chapter 7. In Proverbs 7, the father is writing to his son and he's, he wants his son to grow up wise. And so he's, he's walking through the world as it were with him and saying, you know, look at the ant, consider his ways, look at this, watch out for this. Well, in Proverbs 7, he warns him of this seductive woman. And he says this in Proverbs 7, 21 to 27. And I think John had this in mind when he wrote this description. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, 
he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to the grave going down to the chambers of death. That is the warning that is given here. John wants to break the enchantment of misworldliness by showing this is where a relationship with her leads. It leads to death. You can think of misworldliness like the Venus flytrap. This is the most fascinating plant in the world. Nature is amazing. The Venus flytrap is an insect-eating plant that attracts flies by giving off a bright, beautiful appearance and a sweet-smelling aroma. And the fly sees that bright flower, smells that sweet aroma, and it comes, and right as it goes over the lip of that plant, guess what happens? Closes in on it, traps it, and then it releases digestive enzymes which break down the fly for three miserable days so it can eat it. Isn't nature amazing? (laughs) Her paths lead to death. Do not be deceived by the attractive, sweet-smelling aroma coming from this Venus flytrap. Well, the next thing that John shows us to break the deceptive spell of misworldliness is that her beauty and power, whatever it may look like now, is ultimately fleeting and is destined for destruction. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Her charm is deceitful, her beauty is fleeting. Now, I'm drawing this point from what John says in verses 8 to 18, which I haven't really touched on much yet. There's reason for that. This section is very dense and very difficult to understand. I know I've said that many times in Revelation, but I I really mean it as well this time. Because as you heard from the reading, verses 8 to 18 is images wrapped in metaphors and then sprinkled with symbolism all over. It is very complex. And so what I find helpful in navigating a section of scripture like this, where it is very easy to get lost, is to try and get clear on what is the big overarching point that's being made. I don't want to get lost in the maze, but I want to to step back and see what is the big overarching point that's being made. So what I try to do, because there's much debate about what this section means, is I try to look at all the different views on how to interpret the details and then step back and ask the question, what is the common thread? What is the common theme that runs through all the different views despite their disagreements? And here's what I think John's main point is in verses 8 to 18. John is saying to us through these images and details, do not be tempted by this seductive woman's beauty or intimidated by her power. Because when Christ returns, she and all her allies and all her followers will go to destruction. Her beauty is fleeting and her power is vain. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 is really the heart and center of this section. This is what you need to see and know and not miss for the details. It says this, they, that is seductive woman, her allies, her followers, the beast, will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. John is saying, do not be tempted by her beauty. Do not be drawn away, because in the end, it will lead to not only her destruction, but yours as well. Christ is the conquering king. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. He is the one you should be drawn to. So it's as if John is saying to those who are marveling at her beauty, don't be seduced when Christ comes for his eternal kingdom the mirage of her beauty will vanish in a moment. Don't be intimidated because when the king of king comes, the mirage of her power will vanish in a moment. 
Now, what I want to do is, is briefly walk through how the details of this section support the main point, in, in my opinion. So verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So the beast, which props up and supports and influence, influences this seductive woman, the beast who represents any political power who poses the Lord, seems to, throughout history, rise and fall only to rise again. So in the Old Testament, you have Egypt rises and falls. Then you have Assyria, which rises and falls. Then you have Babylon, which rises and falls. And then Rome rises. And so it's constantly coming. And you have this, this unholy alliance between the power-addicted state and the pleasure-addicted society. And it's like that mythical creature, Hydra. Every time you cut off one of its heads, you think it's gone, and then two more heads grow up in its place. And it keeps cropping up and popping up all over. It was and is not, and then it is to come. And yet, this pattern, John is saying, will come to a dramatic conclusion when Christ returns, because then it will go to destruction, once and for all. Well, then as we move to verses 9 to 11, I think John is describing Rome at the time he wrote this. So John is describing Rome to his original audience as the latest and most, most lethal embodiment of a society in which political power is married with a cultural ideology that opposes God and his people. So verse 9 says this. This calls for a mind with wisdom, which I think is the greatest understatement in John's letter. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now, we give cities nicknames, right? We have Chicago, the Windy City. We have New York, the Big Apple. Well, Rome was nicknamed the city on seven hills or the city on seven mountains. So everyone John was writing to would have understood this reference as this Rome is what he's talking about. So at the time John's writing, he's telling his audience, Rome is the current expression of this. Do not be deceived and seduced by Rome's cultural influence and cultural practices. Don't be drawn away from Christ by them. It goes on to say this about Rome in verses 10 to 11. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. Now at this point, it should be no surprise to you that I lean toward the fact that I think these numbers are symbolic. I don't think John is necessarily laying out kind of the order of kings. I think there's, there's a possibility of that view where John is kind of letting them map out the kings that have come, the one that is, and the one that's going to come. But what I think John is saying is that this beastly, seductive reign of Rome that has wreaked so much havoc on the church is about to come to a close. Five have come, one is, and one is yet. There's, there's more that passed than are coming. So Rome's seductive, beastly reign is about to come to an end, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. Now, it's likely at this time that Christian persecution was widespread in Rome, but it was not yet official government policy of the Roman Empire. So if, if you were in Rome at this time, you would hear about persecution everywhere. But it was not yet an official edict of the empire. But that was going to change. Times were going to get even more difficult for the church because it was going to become official government policy that the church would be persecuted. And yet, even as difficult as it got for the church, Rome came crumbling to the ground in the end, and the church continued to grow and spread and thrive throughout the earth. Rome crumbled and the church spread. So John is one sense saying, hold on, continue to endure. The time is short. Well, then in verses 12 to 13, 
John sees this pattern, which is embodied currently in Rome, that they're enduring, as continuing on in the future in other places. So verse 12. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. What I think John is saying is that this unholy alliance of political power, seductive society, even after Rome crumbles, will rise in different forms in different places at different times and will continue on. That there will be beastly, seductive societies just like Rome was, and that this will continue on as a pattern until Christ returns. And yet when Christ returns, know, verse 14, the King of kings and Lord of lords will put it to an end because he will conquer them and he will reign victoriously and all those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So John is saying to us as believers, in any day, at any time, be vigilant and be alert. Beware of this seductive wound. Do not be deceived by your appearances. Do not buy into any ideology, any culture, any manner of living, which is going to rear its ugly head and try and draw you away from Christ. Continue to devote yourself to a pure and sincere obedience and following of Christ. And remember, all her paths lead to death and her beauty is fleeting and her power is vain. And yet the most important truth we must remember is that misworldliness cannot compete with or compare to Christ. The ultimate thing that breaks the spell of worldliness is not saying to yourself over and over, worldliness bad, worldliness bad. That's not how it works. The ultimate spell-breaking power of worldliness is looking at Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the allure of worldliness will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, which is why verse 14 is the center there. It's to remember that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Despite what we might see by appearances in the world, we need to remember that the throne at the center of heaven has Christ there. And so when we fill our affections with the height and length and depth and breadth of the loveliness of Christ, there will be no room for the seductive influence of a fallen world. I think of it like this. When you know your favorite food is going to be cooked very soon for you, that day, for that evening, let's say it's for dinner, right? Your favorite, most enjoyable, most delightful food by the, the best cook ever is going to be cooked that evening. You are guarding your stomach. You are guarding your appetite. If people are coming, they're offering you Doritos, Cheetos, Fritos, Eatos, whatever. And you're saying no, because you know that something better is coming. So for me, I, I know I've probably used this illustration before my mom's here. My mom's Swedish meatballs. It does not get any better. That is heaven on earth, Okay. And if I know she's cooking Swedish meatballs, I don't care how hungry I am, how much my stomach growls, I am laser focused. I am zoned in. Nothing can distract me. I am going to save myself for meatballs. Now, what are you saying? Is Jesus a Swedish meatballs? Well, to a degree. Yes. I don't know what I'm saying. All right. (laughs) This is not in the script. What I'm saying is that the greatest... Power, the, the greatest way to break the power of worldliness is to replace it with an even greater beauty, which is Christ. To know the loveliness, the height, breadth, length, and depth of the love of Christ. That's what pushes out the appeal of sin. That's what makes no room for sin, no appetite for sin. When we fill our affections with Christ, there's no room for sin. That's how we break this influence. So let's pray to that end. Lord, would you... 
enlighten the eyes of our heart. Would you increase our appetite for the loveliness of Christ? Help us to see more of the height and length and breadth and depth of his majesty and humility and mercy and grace. Lord, protect us from all that would draw us away from him. And Lord, when, where we have been drawn away, where we are being drawn away, Lord, grant us the grace, the sufficient grace that is only found in him to break the power of that seductive spell on our hearts. Lord, may we live in this world in such a way that we enjoy the gifts you have placed in here, that we act in moderation to the gifts you have provided, but that ultimately our home and our hearts would be with Christ, where he is seated in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn your bulletin as we respond to this word we've just heard, and let's sing this prayer, more love, O Christ, to thee. Let's stand together and sing this on page nine of our bulletin.